Welcome to our Boots on the Ground series, where we interview individuals who have actually lived through hyperinflation. The goal is to help us all be as prepared as possible for this inevitable hyperinflation that likely lies in our very near future. Firstly, so that we can sustain a reasonable living standard. And secondly, to be in a position to take advantage of this event and potentially be better off on the other side. I'm Lynette Zhang, Chief Market Analyst here at ITM Trading, a full-service physical gold and silver dealer. My guest today on Coffee with Lynette, I'm really excited, is Dr. Elda Pema, and she was gracious enough to come in and talk to us because she has either familiar or personal experience with not one, but two hyperinflationary events. The first through her family's experience of the Italian takeover of Albania during World War II, and the second in the 90s in Bulgaria, as she was a student of economics at the American University there. After graduation, she came back to the US and got her PhD in economics and public economics. She's currently a people research scientist at Facebook, and prior to that, she taught applied data analytics analysis, economics, and labor economics at the Naval Postgraduate School. So as an economist, she brings a critical understanding to add to her personal experience of living through hyperinflation. Elda, thank you so much for coming today. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Lynette, especially for the opportunity to tell these stories to others. Um, uh, especially in this time that we're living now, where it's more relevant than ever. Um, I'd like to first uh, talk a little bit about growing up in Albania, which um, experienced one of the most uh, severe dictatorships, communist dictatorships, in for more than 40 years. Um, we were liberated by the Italian takeover in 44, and soon after the communists took over, Albania was extremely poor, and so there were very few wealthy people uh, or landlords. And so there was quite a bit of um, popular support for taking over, confiscating the property of the few wealthy and spreading it over to everybody else. Uh, during this period, everything got confiscated, all property, um, everything, stores, any kind of private en enterprise, um, all, all homes, <laughs> uh, ranches, land, anything got, got confiscated, as was gold as well. Um, my family wasn't wealthy, but my aunt married into a wealthy family. They were merchants, they had houses, ranches, stores. Everything was gone in an instant. Everything was taken over. Um, they were, however, able to um, hide their gold and they survived for the next 40 plus years as a family with that gold. Um, a few years ago, my aunt actually gave me one of those pieces of gold that I wear oh, wow. as a necklace. It's, um, it's a French franc from the uh, 19th century. And it's a constant reminder that gold has always been money and was pretty much the only way for them to, for this particular family to survive and also hold on to some of their wealth. Mm -hmm. um, after the uh, communist rule um, was basically over in 1991, um, a, lot of former, a lot of people who owned land were able, or, or houses or real estate were able to get it back. But this particular family that I know of has spent 30 years in lawsuits right to little by little take some of that property back it's so in other words there may be disruptions that will result in loss of say prop, um, real property but getting it back is not necessarily easy right and so um 
during the time that gold was confiscated, it was, it was pretty much illegal to own, trade. Um, however, there was, um, there was uh, sort of an underground economy. Black market. Was, Black market mm-hmm. that was pervasive pretty much in all of the Eastern Bloc countries. And mm-hmm. so uh, jewelry was not illegal. So um, a lot of people melted the gold, you know, went to a jeweler, melted it, turned it into jewelry, and then sold it. So that was one way to convert it into the currency. Uh, and again, black market, right? Um, so it was um, it was a very interesting time, obviously, that right. surpassed <laughs> anybody's expectations in terms of how bad it could get and um yeah they thought it couldn't happen here right i mean that's always the way people think or they'll say oh well maybe can happen over there but you know this is this is just impossible to happen here and it it happened very gradually like so for example when communists took over they didn't just take everything from everybody. They took everything from the few rich ones and and spread the wealth around. So all of the small farmers got a piece of land. They were working for the landlord before. Now they got a piece of land to work on it themselves. And so um, everyone basically supported that, right? (laughs) At least the majority supported that. It made sense. Now we have, so, but this equalization of the means didn't really result in the equalization of the outcomes. People who worked harder, obviously, (laughs) um, ended up with more, and that was not good enough. And so the regime decided, no, we're going to equalize the outcomes too. So in the 70s, they took over the entire land. They basically got rid of all private enterprise and private property. Uh, it, it was made illegal. You could not run a business <laughs> out of your home or anywhere else. Uh, you couldn't own land. You couldn't own anything. And so when they took over all of the land and they became the owner, now all of the farmers had to work in the government land, the government enterprise. And it made no like that's how they erased all incentives for uh, entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. creativity, for working hard, right? If if you're gonna make just as much as the next guy, why why work harder than the next guy, right? Right. And so this race to the bottom <laughs> really characterized uh, the last 20 years of the dictatorship, as well as um, what the inevitable um, shortages that happen, right? Shortages in food and. And, and well, you, you may, I want to talk more about the food shortages because food does become the biggest issue for most people during these transitions. But you also made a really interesting statement and you're talking about the real property, so land, which is immovable. And therefore it's much easier to confiscate and it's much, because you can't put it on your back and walk away with it. But your family member had gold and so they were, and you can't hide land either. I mean, it's there. Right. <laughs> right. So, uh, but they were able to do that with gold and then survive for 40 years on that real money that they got to hide. And I think exactly. it's also interesting that jewelry was not confiscated, right? Maybe because it's a collectible. And I wonder if other collectibles might not have also been not confiscated. I guess it, it, it was traditional for people to, um, when at least there was a wedding or an engagement, to gift jewelry and wear jewelry. And so I think that was the reason why, maybe like a traditional, I think that, that would have been very hard to break. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, India has been trying to do that forever. And mm-hmm. so that might have been a push too hard because the last thing any government wants is a revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So um, I think there was quite a bit of like affinity to gold jewelry. But it was hard to take that. It was considered there was, I mean, it's not like there was no push for that. There was, it was wearing jewelry or excessive jewelry was considered bourgeois, right? There were couples that to show their, <laughs> their um, like dedication to the regime would marry without gold bands. So there was not like, it's not mm. that it went quietly but it was not illegal. Interesting. Yeah. It really, really interesting. 
So, um, so this was sort of like the distant past, <laughs> the less distant past. When I went to Bulgaria to college, I was on a full scholarship paid in dollars. And when I first got there, I noticed that the exchange rate between the dollar and the lev was about one to 50, 52 or so, $1, 52 lev. And so for the next couple of years, uh, the exchange rate kept inching up to about $1 for 70 lev. I did not see a difference in my standard of living, obviously, but I did notice the exchange rate, right, creeping up. And it may sound like it's not so big, but I mean, it's like, what, 40% increase, right? Right. If so, they do that over a long period of time, it's not so noticeable. Like, exactly. you know, all of the fiat currencies have lost so much of their purchasing power value. So were you um, getting money to live on uh, in Bulgaria in dollars at that point? So you actually were probably better off then because you had very, dollars. I was very well off, but not quite. So I thought that was shielded from what happened afterwards. You wake up one morning and you find out the exchange rate is about a thousand <laughs> lev to one dollar. I'm sorry. Yeah. A thousand lev to one dollar. Mm -hmm. And um, so you think, well, I'm in the money, right? <laughs> dollars. Not quite. Really? Okay. Whenever, no, whenever these big economic shifts happen, it's, it's like a storm. It might not affect everyone the same way, but everyone does get affected. <laughs> and so, right. um, so the first thing that happened was because the, the, the exchange rate was changing like within hours, it made, I, I would lose money if I exchanged any, uh, anything bigger, like big, big bills. Any big bills were just not a smart move. So I was only exchanging like a dollar, five dollars at a time. Oh, that sounds like when I was in college, I was exchanging ten dollars <laughs> at a time, <laughs> taking ten dollars out of the bank. But yes, okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, uh, no, so yeah, I mean, it's not like normally I would exchange more, right. but. I would exchange, so now I, I used to have like a budget for the week and I would exchange that money at the beginning of the week and then carry on. Right. That was just not possible anymore. So the trips to the exchange bureau were basically happening daily. And once I run out of the one and $5 bills, um, the next question was, well, how much money am I losing by exchanging a bigger bill? Right. Uh, because every transaction had to be carried out in lead. So if I exchange a $20 bill and I get this lev that tomorrow will be useless, I'm still affected, right? So then I thought, okay, well, the best way then to deal with this when I only have big denomination, like 20s, I was a student, right. <laughs> not much further than that, um, was to just buy stuff. So if I buy the things that I can predict I'm going to need in the next you know, few weeks, then that could be a good strategy. So then you go to the store and all of the price stickers are gone uh, <laughs> because all of the sellers have now realized that they'd be losing money, right? Mm -hmm. If they sell at the old price. Mm -hmm. And so you have to ask the seller for the price of every item in your basket. And they can't just quote your price. They will go with their little calculator, figure out what is the the, the spot exchange rate mm -hmm. and give you a value at that point in time. So you are basically getting a different dollar, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, dollar value or lev value at any point in time you want to shop. Transaction costs at this point have completely ballooned, right? Imagine going through a checkout lane that way. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually this got way too costly, but also very, um, unpredictable. So from a seller's point of view, they don't know whether it's better to sell and get worthless, possibly worthless currency, or not sell at all, and hold on to the stuff to the wares they have in their, in their store. Because mm -hmm. so, they can't replace um, them. Matter of, they couldn't replace them for the same amount that they were selling them at. Exactly. Right, exactly. So they eventually figured out that uh, tying their prices to the spot exchange rate was still not good enough. And so all the stores within a week, all the stores were boarded up. Would, would, that, would that be um, because they were looking at an official rate, which was one thing. And when they had to buy product, 
you know, it was they were the rate looking was different. at the market rate. They would look at the market rate. Like if I were to go to the exchange bureau, what would I be getting? Right, that's That'd the be rate the they official. were looking at. Mm-hmm. Right. the The problem was that it was just too um, uncertain. Like business carrying out business was just too uncertain. They just didn't know if I sell it at this exchange rate, I could sell it for more an hour later, right? Should I hold on or what? And then if I do get left, what are, is this going to be useless tomorrow? So in other words, like the whole faith in the currency was eroded to the point that it made no sense to carry out business using that currency. So, so there are a few mm-hmm. things about that, but, you know, as, as a student, you might have had a different perspective, but you were studying economics. And so at yeah. what point did you see the general population or did you see the general population lose confidence in the LEV? Oh, everybody did. And it happened It happened really fast within the span of a week, as in wow. people waking see? up and finding out that their monthly salary was now worth a couple of dollars. It was so drastic, so fast that within a couple of weeks, the exchange rate went from one left to 70, I'm sorry, one dollar to 70 left to one dollar, 3,000 left. Mm-hmm. Wow, and so, in one week. Um, and then people started coming out on the street and protesting. There was um, mm-hmm. people obviously who were hit the hardest were retirees. Anyone who worked in the past and collected old lev, <laughs> old as in pre-inflation lev, <laughs> um, they saw their savings erased within a matter of days, and um, and with no opportunity to reclaim that once the economic situation was brought under control. So once they put in in Bulgaria, they put in what a currency stability board, currency and, board. and then they, they put in a currency board. Mm-hmm. Nope. They pegged the they pegged their currency to the Deutschmark. So at this point, they basically had no more control over any type of monetary. Like they had no more monetary policy they could carry out. It was whatever the central bank of Germany decided to do that they had to go with it. However, what this did was create some trust, sort of bring in the trust that was lost in the currency in the public, so they could again accept lev for transactions. So, um, oh, mm-hmm. when, well, when I saw that, you know, and I was studying, I was reading about it and I thought to myself, well, because we see this down in, in Venezuela right now, what if every currency on the planet is hyperinflating at the same time? Where are they going to go? Do you have, do you, I mean, I think that what they'll do is they'll go to gold. And, and even though like th- that was a solution, yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, and the goal. Um, exactly. Yeah, that was a temporary, like that was a solution to get out of the crisis, but it right. came with a lot of costs. So it's not that, you know, we could hypothetically believe there is one currency in the world that is still stable and we could all peg to that and solve all of our problems with hyperinflation. <laughs> well, the problems there, there, there aren't still the problems currency. It's not like... Right. The problems are the governments and the yeah. central banks. The problem is not the currency. Exactly. Right? So that's sort of like fixing or putting a Band-Aid on the problem, maybe, you know, continuing to run for a bit. But um, there were a lot of people who lost everything, obviously. Um, I with, Like within a couple of months, I had currency that in the pockets of jackets that was no longer in use, no longer in circulation. They retired all of the small denominations. So, so did um, they do a, of, re-dom- uh, a re-denomination in, in, of um, LEVs? Did they do a re Because if they then pegged it and people couldn't, how, how did why did Yeah, I'm sorry. Basically, inflation, whatever inflation was like built in the system at the point where they created the currency board, that's, that, that, that's where it like that sort of became permanent as in. And so all of the one and two and five left currency like denominations were just useless at that point. 
there were mechanics using the coins to make like washers to fix cars. I mean, it was just, had just more worth for scrap metal. Yeah. So, so, um, so the savings were wiped out. You said, and there was no opportunity, even with that currency board, even with the promises that this was going to fix it, there was no way for the normal person to recover, re recover. So things basically were stabilized to the point that we could, that the, the country could go on and the stores could open and business could continue. But what was wiped out was wiped out permanently. Um, and so that was, so in other words, there could be a solution hypothetically if there is a stable currency in the world for situations like these of hyperinflation. But, you know, when it comes to the individual who is trying to preserve their wealth, that's not a solution. Yeah. The, it's just the solution for going on from the disaster. <laughs> well, there are always, you know, I, what we know is a hyperinflationary event is a massive wealth transfer. So the IMF, interestingly enough, the IMF did a study on, on uh, Bulgaria and I want to just kind of read this for you, and then I want you to tell me what you think about it, okay? This is okay. from the IMF. The near hyper, the near hyperinflation, <laughs> I love that, the near hyperinflation of late 96 and early 97, although difficult and costly, helped ensure the viability of the currency board by reducing the real value of domestic debt which had initially been a threat to a balanced budget. It made fiscal management without recourse to the central bank possible. Without recourse, I love that. Furthermore, it gave banks breathing room by rapidly devaluing their domestic currency liabilities while increasing the real value of the dollar-denominated government bonds they held. So, you know, you can see the IMF thought that that hyperinflationary event was very helpful. What do you think about it? Well, like you said, the, the, there was a transfer of wealth and that was from um, the average retiree in the country to the banks, right? The banks were able to reduce their debts held in LEV and increase their assets held in foreign currency. Exactly. Easy solution, right? To banking prices. Mm. Um, yeah, the I thought it was great. Destroyed in the right. Yeah, and that and that's really who we're talking to are the people, the normal people like you and like me. So, what do you think about the real solution to it? I mean, was not a hundred percent of the population ended up in abject poverty, but certainly a large part. Did, right? Right. So, what what could what do you think they could have done? I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because you've had you know two different experiences in the family. Did your family do anything after the first one to protect themselves from the second one, knowing what they knew with the gold and all of that? Um. Unfortunately, Albania was so poor that there was no way that once the communists took over, it, there was no way to create wealth that then you could amass in any way. Um, like the entire future, financial future, economic future depended on the government. Yes. Um, you were, once you retired, you were paid what the government decided to pay you. And because no private enterprise was allowed, there was no way for you to build wealth of any form. <laughs> and so uh, there was actually no credit system in Albania at the time. So if you wanted to buy, mm -hmm. say, uh, a washer and dryer, <laughs> right? Uh, people would get into these pools where they would pay into the pool. They would pull the money, like 10 families would pay into this pool, pull the money, and the family, one family would take that money and buy a big ticket item. But, you know, there was no banking sector to lend money mm. <laughs> or, or like this is like the level of financial of the financial sector in Albania at the time. Did they go to barter? So they went to barter uh, amongst um, themselves too, 
bartering maybe services or there was a lot of that yes uh the black market was basically where most things what most transactions happened um once the communists took over the all the land especially the farmland that's when the um that's when all of the food shortages hit and so it was very and then of course we broke off um, all really diplomatic relationships with China and Russia who were helping us economically with food. And so this is the point where it really, like the grip really tightened. We couldn't leave the country. No one could come into the country. You couldn't own anything. <laughs> you were basically, um, if, if you spoke about any of this as being bad, you were jailed for life or worse. Your family was interned in some like remote village with no water or electricity so it like the grip really tightened during those years and um food was rationed people spent most of their day in lines to get their rations having a ration didn't mean that you would actually get it you had to stand in line to get it <laughs> and so um a lot of the like there was food that was sold on the black market uh, for people who had the money. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's when most of like any amount of money anybody had went to food for at least a couple of decades. And so there was no way to build wealth enough to you know, have enough to buy coins, gold coins and save it. Whatever was built before the communists took over, that was it. Fascinating. Um, so prosperity, the word prosperity was just wiped out <laughs> of the vocabulary. Unfortunately, I think that's where we're headed, because even as you were explaining, you know, borders closing and, you know, the control of the government. I mean, I kind of think I see a lot of that starting to happen and people going, oh, no, that can never really happen here. But this feels that this feels to me like the beginning of it, but I haven't lived through it. What does it feel like to you? What are you seeing? And how are you and how are you responding to that? What are you doing to protect yourself this time? Um, I'm, I've been very nervous since last year. I sort of I had this premonition. I was feeling it in my gut that things aren't going the right way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm extremely nervous about what's happening um, currently, as you described, with the closing of the borders, the, uh, what you what's allowed to be said in public and what's exactly not, that is extremely you know that's going in a way that was really extreme in my experience. It was so extreme that, for example, you couldn't say the word God, and if you were watching a foreign movie on Albanian TV and someone in the movie said, "My God." the subtitles would censor that word out. <laughs> it was that extreme. Like there was, you you know, that they were censoring foreign actors. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, you know, there are a lot of us on YouTube that feel very censored. Yeah. And so that to me is very concerning. Mm -hmm. um, Albanians weren't stupid to jump for this at the beginning. It, crept up on them little by little by little by little. Um, there was always like a good selling point at the beginning, but once the government had complete control, then they could do anything. And any dissenting voices were um, killed, jailed, families in turn. And this is actually the way that, that they were able to maintain control, that the families would take the brunt of the... Uh, of the punishment. Mm -hmm. In other so, words, they used yeah. fear. They used right? fear, coercion, anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what, was it ever a point where it was like neighbor that, you know, like early in the beginning where they would have the neighbor police neighbor kind of thing? Oh, for the entire time. The entire time. So you could be having a very bad day and having a drink with your friend and you say one word too many, the friend would be ratting you out. 
I know personally people whose lives were destroyed that way. They said something to a friend they couldn't, they shouldn't have said. And, 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 you know, to a friend, to a friend, I mean, to a friend. Yes. And so, um, yes, it was, that's what they relied on to enforce this, right? They didn't have policemen in every house. Right. Um, my grandfather was very outspoken. <laughs> and so he would just, you know, be speak, speak in the house. He would be speaking out and yelling, like, he's a crook or whatever. And we were like, hush, 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 no, 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 no. Like, keep, keep quiet, keep grandpa quiet before, you guys, before the neighbors hear it. <laughs> And we're seeing that in like the recent law that was passed in Texas. And I know up in Canada where neighbors are supposed to let you know if somebody's supposed to quarantine. So we're seeing that same kind of behavior again on a global basis, aren't we? And I'm sad to say that that works. Well, it it does. It makes your world really narrow and you can't really exchange ideas. Yeah. Right. Which is why, you know, which is why what you're doing by volunteering your story, it's critically important. I mean, I can volunteer my research and I can give my opinion, but I have not lived, uh, I've lived through a currency shift because I was alive in 1971. And Mm -hmm. I remember that as a teenager, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but Really, I haven't gone through what you went through in Bulgaria, and most people that are looking at this probably haven't. But if anybody has had that experience, please send that to services at ITM Trading if you're willing to come on and share your story because it's really, really important. So I wanted to go back to what parallels can you see, you know, with your with your 2020 hindsight of what you lived through, and as an economist today, what are you seeing? Do you think this time will be different? Because that's what everybody thinks. Um, well, history repeats itself. So that it might be different, I doubt that. Um, socially, I'm seeing a lot of what I experienced growing up in Albania. Um, as far as... Um, like the economic sector, I'm seeing a lot of what preceded the economic collapse in Bulgaria, the hyperinflation of Bulgaria. The reason why they had hyperinflation was this quantitative easing. They were injecting money into the economy. And so that's been happening in overdrive. Yes. In this economy. <laughs> so, Hyperdrive, you might say. Exactly. So that concerns me a lot. Um, seeing that the economy didn't collapse. So I, I know a lot of people are nervous about the state of the economy. And they think that this is the United States, nothing horrible is gonna happen here. Well, nothing happened, nothing horrible in the big picture happened in Bulgaria either. People still live, they're still a country, right? Called Bulgaria. But that doesn't mean that the lives weren't destroyed, financially speaking, and wealth wasn't eroded. And so maybe something big might happen and the United States will still continue to be <laughs> as I hope and wish, but that doesn't mean that that individuals are not gonna have a hard time financially for, for a pre-period of time or forever as a result of that. So what are you doing if you don't mind sharing and you don't have to, um, it's, you know, yeah. but. But how has that changed your perspective and what you're doing for yourself? Because you also mentioned retirement. Yes. So I've personally been, um, when, when I first found your channel, I was, it, it felt like a very ballsy move to liquidate your re- retirement and take it out of the system. I was like, whoa, that is so original. I never thought that. And then I've been like for the whole year, I've been mulling that over and thinking, I think getting the money out as soon as possible is probably a smart move. And so I've been converting my savings into um, into um, precious metals. I've been talking to someone at ITM. Hidden very well and not in your home. 
not in my home. Right. We just want to uh, make that point for anybody that No, no, it's not. It's not worth breaking in for sure. Uh, but I'm, I've started to liquidate my assets in my retirement account um, because just in the past few weeks, there's been major um, downturn. Um, and so I feel like that's like living on borrowed time, that the retirement money is living on borrowed time. And so my plan is to eventually take the money, all of my retirement money out um, and maybe leave just some because I'm not like, I guess I haven't gotten like mentally to the point. Getting it's hard to believe. System. It's very hard, <laughs> even as an economist, even with all of that, you know, well, life experience. Didn't the Bulgarian the, stock market raise as the currency was going into hyperinflation? Didn't that go up? Um, I believe so, but um, I wasn't in the market. I was a student at the time. Right. <laughs> Barely any savings. But, but it did. So people rush into the market, which is denominated in the LEV, and the markets go up and they think, isn't this great? Oh, yeah. I'm making money. But the purchasing power value of the underlying currency, which is the only thing you can convert it into. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. you know, so you you and you also uh, talked about Cyprus. And I've talked a lot about Cyprus over the years. Very interesting how they tested out, you know, uh, taking bank accounts with and without insure the deposit insurance scheme and the retirement plans. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that as well? Right. So as now I'm thinking about how best to protect my retirement savings, that case has been in my mind a lot because what happened in Cyprus, um, to save the country from a financial crisis. Um, the government negotiated, I think, a $13 billion deal with the IMF and other European banks. Um, and according to this, um, they would be bailed out. But what was the catch? Any uh, accounts over 100,000 euros, which may seem like a big amount, but it's not if you've worked all your life for that. Right. It's about what now, $110,000. Any amount above that was basically taken, stolen, really. And um, it lost about half of its value. And it was converted into shares into the bank, the failing bank. Sounds okay, like so a deal to me. People What's were the problem? forced to buy shares into a failing bank. That's a great investment, right? <laughs> Imagine your life savings going into that <laughs> deal. And so there is a precedent, and more than one, of governments basically taking over retirement money. It's it's just, I feel like, especially, it, it's just too easy. Empty. <laughs> right, it is because that all that wealth is sitting there. Sitting there there yeah. is no trustee that's going to say, "Oh, government, no, we're going to protect our clients because yeah. basically they take your wealth." And then this is not true in in every case, and you'd have to look at the individual documents. But in many cases, they get to use your equity as collateral and borrow. It's not really your equity once you make that deposit. You have to read the fine print. You know, you're loaning the bank that money. And so you're a creditor, just like everybody else, which is why they could easily take that. Right. The, the other thing about Cyprus that I found really interesting, um, and we could, uh, Edgar, would you find that graph? And it, it, you can just remind me. But I came across this graph that showed uh, like the other European banks and German banks and how once the once Cyprus became part of the uh, European mm -hmm. Union, right? They made all these massive deposits, but then they started getting out, you know, like exactly. Whereas the general population, they just keep their money in there. It's sticky. Yeah. You know, do you think they knew something? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like. So in my experience so far, my life experience in these countries with very shaky economies and big financial disasters happening is that um, it's very hard to trust 
the system. Mm-hmm. And it's um, the small people that get to carry the bag at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, we need to look for ways to protect the wealth that we've created uh, in that, that do not involve us, that does not involve the system. Or at least a portion of that wealth, if we're not comfortable with all of it. You know, I have my mantra, which you're probably familiar with. Food, water, energy, security, barterability, wealth preservation, community, and shelter. So if you look at that, is there, is there, I mean, would, if you were able to get yourself positioned in each one of those areas, and I, and under the food, I always kind of think of medicine for anybody that has a chronic illness, because what mm-hmm. happened to medicine during this period of time, you couldn't get it, yeah, yeah. right? So, um, you know, if somebody actually executed that strategy, which I personally have, you know, mm-hmm. do you think that that would, what kind of, do you think that that would really offer enough protection? Or is there something else that we should add to it? Or is it too much? Or what do you think about that? Um, I think that would be a lot of protection. Um, So for example, growing up, all houses in Albania did have a little garden and some chicken, so we wouldn't go hungry. Um, But those gardens were eliminated over time. And so that self-reliance was basically taken over <laughs> or, or re- sort of like taken away little by little. We ended up with a generation that didn't know or considered it backwards to have chickens in the backyard. So I do believe that having some source of food that doesn't depend on stores or anywhere else is definitely, I just wonder like to what extent self-reliance is possible in the United States because um, there's been many more generations here. Okay, I did grow up with backyard chicken because my grandmother had them, but my husband, who's American, didn't. <laughs> right? How many generations in the U.S. have grown without knowing how to? Right? Um, I really enjoy like I'm enjoying the trend of seeing people plant more. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that in the U.S there could be ways that do not involve a full, you know, live out of your backyard. Right. Uh, so, so there's farms, small farms, and people are organizing yeah, communities from the farms, communities, right? So communities where you can get the food from a farm and help out or arrange right. some way, right, to have access to that uh, without having to become a farmer ourselves. That could... Right. <laughs> that I feel like it would be sustainable. So maybe not going all the way, but figuring out some middle way. Exactly. That doesn't involve you getting in the car and going to the store mm-hmm. would be um, would be definitely the first thing to think about, right? We need food. Um, and so what, what else would I add there? Well, obviously I would add gold. Um, well, that's the wealth preservation piece. Right. And, and also, you know, a bit of the barterability, though, I personally prefer silver mm-hmm. for, for, oh, this is more it's gold. Not, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But this is, you know, I personally prefer silver for barterability because, as you pointed out earlier, you know, you're going to get change back in what? The currency that has no value. <laughs> yeah. Or well, Greece, in Greece, when they couldn't do the cash they were giving you, you know, chewing gum or lollipops or candy bars or, you know, whatever they actually had that they could make change with. So the only thing I would add based on my experience would be um, some currency that you might believe it's not going to go away. So in Albania, for example, dollars and Deutschmarks or euros were considered safe. And so we had major mass migration in the 90s and Albania never really experienced hyperinflation because there was so much foreign currency coming into the country, mm-hmm. people working abroad and bringing currency into the country. And so um, it was actually very acceptable in Albania to carry out a transaction in foreign currency, like especially if it was a big ticket item. If I wanted to buy a ticket to the US, 
I would use dollars. So um, if we do believe that there are countries out there with currencies that might be more trustworthy than do the you dollar, see any? <laughs> no, but I just think a little bit of that for transaction purposes. Initially. Initially, yes, before right. everything goes down. Exactly. And and I agree with that. That's actually um, part of, I don't know, I don't know if you've looked at the strategy, but it's based upon, you know, just those repeatable patterns. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you that there's a certain level of currency that you need to have initially because yes. that's what people recognize. But then, yes. as you pointed out, as the currency loses purchasing power and the merchants can't replace the goods for what they could sell them to you for, then that's where you that's where the silver comes in. Yes. Yes, and, yes, yes. you know, un unless they confiscate all property, that's also your property taxes are going to go up like crazy. And that's where the gold can come in, as well yeah. as protecting whatever you choose to keep inside of the system. Yes. I guess so, I'm I guess I'm pretty brave, but I think I've been groomed for this moment in time, really my entire life. Yeah. So watching the watching the currency life cycles and the US dollars was the one that I was really paying attention to the most for obvious reasons and seeing the technical confirmation of the end that that was back in 2002 I came in June 28th 2002 no uh, was it yeah it was October was like the final confirmation so I believe it I mean, I believe it with all of my heart. So I personally don't own any fiat money products because I don't see the point in them. They're, yes. they're severely overvalued and, and not just because people bid them up, but because the real trend is the purchasing power value of the currency. Yes. So, yes. you know, you can see it going up, but if, if it, the currency is not accepted if all confidence, or I shouldn't say if, when all when confidence in the lost. currency is lost, what do you have? Yeah, yeah. There's way too many countries and many points in history where currency is devalued to the point where it's not worth the paper it's printed on. And so it's very wise to uh, plan for that time. Exactly. And I love that you're wearing the French franc around your neck yes. because that is a constant reminder. <laughs> you know, the, the fiat money franc has no value, but that little gold coin there, which is what, roughly a 20th of an ounce of, or not, that's probably a 20 franc, right? So it's a, it's a small denomination. I think it's five. It's a five franc. I can't read it, yeah. So it's a little piece 20, of gold. 20. Yeah. It's a 20 franc. Yeah. So that's, um, so that's what, 0. 0.1875 or something like that in gold content weight, something like that. I, I mean, I could be off. So yeah. check you guys, if you're going to, you know, just check on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's what I actually own lots of francs. I love them yeah. um, mm -hmm. as well as other, but it all depends on what you're trying to accomplish with the franc or with any of these small denominations. It's a whole yeah. strategy. Yeah, could yeah, you, yeah. you know, could you see, I know you were young during that period of time, but did you see wealth transfer happen? Did you see people from other countries that had currencies like the dollar or the Deutschmark have the ability to go in and buy assets yes. in Bulgaria? Absolutely. Yeah, in Albania, um, they did buy uh, property. So yes, there was wealth transfer. Um, I was just thinking back to the question of what am I doing? And the reason why I, I just had this realization that the reason why I've been so risk averse and not really act on, you know, what I know to be possible to happen, right, is because there, once you come to the United States, and the United States is such a big, I'd say, has this, this reputation of really being one of the strongest countries mm -hmm. economically. It's very hard to wrap your mind around 
the possibility that that may not continue to be so. And so it's, I think for people who haven't had these experiences, it's even harder to believe that, you know, something financially destabilizing that is of these proportions can ever happen. And so it's, um, but if we look at what's happening and the trends with monetary policy, there is no, um, there is no other outcome you know, that involves no wealth transfer and no devaluation. And then, you know, uh, wealthier people would possibly carrying some other currency or gold. <laughs> this is the safest and, currency. And it is really interesting uh, because you made the statement that, you know, that you are hesitant to do all of it because you're risk averse, but... If you look at what the Bank for International <laughs> Settlement says, right. this is the right. only, right. the only financial asset that runs no counterparty risk. Right. And when you look at, you know, as an economist too, when you look at global central banks, I see them as between a rock and a hard place because the interest rates do you think they can raise interest rates? In these in this in these conditions in the US, no way. No right. way. The labor market is tanking, inflation is high, you raise interest rates, literally recession. No, there's and, just no way. And you know, I mean, as an economist too, let's kind of stay on there for just a minute. I know we're going a little long, but I I find this really fascinating to tell you the truth because you have the central banks coming out and saying that they have the tools and saying, you know, and and basically Powell saying, oh yeah, well, I'll, I'll raise interest rates, but you have other countries that are doing that right now, like Mexico is one that I can think of off the top of my head, and it's not helping their currency. And that's because it's not a demand issue, it's a supply issue. So. You know, I see them as being between a rock and a hard place. How do you see this whole global circumstance? Um, the most recent experience we had in the U.S. with this situation was in the 70s with Carter. And the only way like that they were able to overcome and come out of it was Volcker reducing, tightening the money supply. Interest rates shot up. The country came to basically stand still. Businesses went bankrupt. Um, in fact, <laughs> I lived in this house where the landlady told me that at the time she owned multiple properties, rental properties, and she told me that the rate that she was paying, the mortgage rate was in the 20s, mm -hmm. 20% something during those times. So yeah. I um, had one at, at like 12%. Cost. Yeah. That is the cost, right? Mm -hmm. or what it would take or what it took the last time this happened in the U.S. to tighten the money supply, bring hyperinflation down. I do not see people being able to survive mortgage rates of those proportions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it'll kill the real estate market, which when is interest rate, huge. Yeah. yeah, if interest rates go up and nothing happens, it's because the jump needs to be a really drastic mm -hmm. for something visible to happen in terms of like inflation coming down. Mm -hmm. And I do not see under the current circumstances, I do not see that move. Yeah, there was there was one more thing that happened in the 70s, which is when Nixon handed over full control of inflation to central banks. And so we did we did shift the currency. And personally, that's what I see coming up with CBDCs. So we went from a gold-backed currency to a debt-backed currency. Now we're going to a programmable currency. Yes. I don't know about you, but that scares the Hades out of that, me. <laughs> that is very, very, very scary. Um, maybe, maybe we're just, <laughs> maybe we're wrong, and I hope we are. But I hope we are for the sake of my children. <laughs> but um, yes, that I totally agree the same sentiment. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's really the point, because if you have this 
I mean, initially my strategy was once we got a currency, because they're, they're going to have to do something and put gold in the new currency at some degree. I'm not saying 100% backing, but they're going to have to do that to get people to have confidence in the currency again and therefore use it, and then they'll start to destroy it again. But with a programmable <laughs> currency, I mean, yeah, it is. It's always a cycle, right? And it just keeps repeating. I like the optimism. <laughs> I I am an optimist. And yes, I mean, I mean, I I live my life in this nasty research, right? That I'm looking at all the time. But I am optimistic because I do see changes happening. I do see people coming more together. Right. I mean, they're trying this whole issue over the last 18 months has been about pushing people apart. And there's still a, a huge amount of division, as we talked about earlier, neighbor against neighbor. But I also see this huge movement more toward community and, yes. and even among the younger people, you know, mm -hmm. and the lack of trust. And, you know, so I have a lot of hope and. You know, this, when you talk about your children, I mean, I'm a lot older than you. I'm 67. I probably have another 30 or 35 more years left, but I also have my grandbabies. And so this is about putting yourself in a position to take advantage of the inevitable. Yes. So that on the other side of this, you and your family and your heirs can come out, you know, potentially in a better Not way. Untouched but wealthier, yes. Right, right. So that they have choices. Because my concern, like we were talking about, uh, you know, everybody now working on the farms that the government owns, working for the government. I mean, that's what they're talking about. You will own nothing and you will be happy and I'm not so sure those people were happy when they own nothing. No, I have full faith in um, the economic man, like the person <laughs> that we talk a lot of in economics, homo economicus, um, the drive for prosperity, for improving one's lot in life and doing so through entrepreneurship is, is something that cannot be taken away. Mm -hmm. And I, this is actually what I trust is going to get us out. Because even in the worst of times, there, were, there was an underground economy. There were black markets that, that basically operated like you know, a regular, perfectly competitive market. So I do have trust in the drive of each person to want to improve their um, financial and, and economic uh, lot. And that's going to probably hopefully get us out of the hard times. Well, we, we will. I mean, I can't imagine, I, and history tells us, you know, we're not going to go into that and stay there. But I think how we walk through that, that's the point of the mantra to be as independent and self-sufficient of the system as possible. Right. And, right. you know, community. So we all have different skills and talents and, you know, we can come together and share those to get through this mess. Right. And then having the being in the right place at the right time with the right assets so that you can take advantage mm -hmm. of this inevitable event. Well, yeah. our time is pretty much up, but is there anything else that you would like to say or add or any parting thoughts for today anyway? Because I'd like to mm -hmm. have you come back on. You're fabulous. Oh, I'd love that too. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to tell these stories. And I'm really glad to see that you're asking others like me with these experiences to come forth and, and share because um, even as I tell these stories, even my children laugh. At, you know, hard to uh, believe. At the, it's hard to believe that this could actually happen. But um, in, in such a... I want to consider my lifetime short, <laughs> you know, I'm in my 40s. So, um, you know, if I have experienced this and I'm in my 40s, it's very likely the probability of it happening is very likely. And the sooner people start hedging against that possibility, the better. 
and I'm including myself in that as well as <laughs> as risk averse as I could think of myself to be. Yes, yes. no counterparty <laughs> risk. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you so much, Lynette. Oh, thank you so I much. That. I really appreciate it. And for our viewers, I hope you got as much out of this as I did. This was wonderful. And until next we meet, please be safe out there. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.